This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. A new tribute album is coming out in a few weeks that covers songs by the English post-punk band Gang of Four. The album features Gang of Four covers by the Dandy Warhols, Idols, and more. This album, titled The Problem of Leisure, is a celebration of Gang of Four guitarist Andy Gill, who died February 1st, 2020. It was an album Andy Gill was working on at a hospital in the final days of his life. His widow, author and activist Catherine Mayer, has worked to ensure the album's release. She joins me now to talk about the record as well as her book called Good Grief, Embracing Life at a Time of Death. Welcome. Thank you so much. So tell me about the importance of this album to your late husband, Andy. It um, really obsessed him for the last couple of years of his life. And of course, you know, he had no idea he was going to die. Um, This wasn't supposed to be a tribute album of any kind, other than to mark Gang of Four's enormous influence on music. And so the idea had come about originally because their very famous debut album, Entertainment, was coming up for its 40th anniversary. And there was this idea maybe people would want to, maybe some of the the famous musicians who had been inspired by them would want to cover songs from Entertainment. And Andy began exploring that. And then what happened was that quite a few of the artists he originally talked to came back and suggested songs from different periods of Gang of Four because Andy was was still writing new albums and still touring with Gang of Four at the point where he died. And, and so there was a, a huge output to choose from. And so it already had begun to change, but it was also very far advanced at the point that he went into hospital. And when he went into hospital, he also, we didn't realize how serious it was. And he in fact delayed going into hospital because he was so enraptured by working on the album and in fact some other new material that he was writing. And he didn't want to leave his studio. You know, he, he, he sort of saw hospital as a bit of a waste of time. So then when he was there in intensive care, but at that stage still conscious and still expecting to be home soon, he asked me to bring his laptop and the hard drives on which some of the covers, which had already been made uh, at that stage, they were just beginning to to come in, um, to bring them into the hospital. And at various times, Santi Arabas, who mixed some of the tracks, came in and listened to them as well. And they were they were literally working on this album right up until the point where he couldn't work on anything anymore. So when he died, it really never was a question for me other than that I must finish what he had started. I knew exactly how much it meant to him. And I also knew how brilliant it was because he'd played me a lot of the tracks. So I'd seen that enthusiasm and that more than that, you know, it was such an important and and great album. So as I say, there was never a question, but that I would bring it out. And what has that been like for you to, you know, ensure that this album saw the light of day? (sighs) Well, um, it's not exactly been easy. I mean, 
Andy died at the start of the COVID pandemic. It seems extremely likely that's what killed him, though it wasn't realised at the time. And he, as it happens, died only a few weeks after my stepfather. So there was quite a lot to deal with just from an administrative point of view, uh, as well as an emotional one. Um, and then, of course, and I live in London, and uh, we went into lockdown almost immediately after that. So there were quite a lot of, you know, <laughs> barriers, I suppose, to getting this done. But so many people have helped with this, wanted it to happen. It has happened, you know. Um, and and actually, I mean, I did a very tiny kind of funeral for Andy. Um, just uh, shortly after he died. It was on the, the 14th of February. It only occurred to me later that, of course, crematoria have spaces on that day because most people probably don't want to spend their Valentine's Day like that or be reminded of that date in that way every year. But um, on that particular day, we managed to release a, a single um, from some of, of the work that Andy had been doing, the other Gang of Four work that Andy had been doing when he died. And we, we released a fundraising single to raise money for the National Health Service in this country, which of course has been at the absolute forefront of the fight against the pandemic. So it's, it's basically been all action really ever since Andy died, trying to ensure his legacy and to celebrate him properly. And it also seems, I mean, I was I was reading your book, um, it's called Good Grief, and you were kind of talking about the process where, you know, Andy was actively touring, you know, the months leading up to his passing, you know, and he had, you know, toured in China, but he also had an underlying um, respiratory uh, illness that he's had for, I think, nearly a decade or so. Walk us through, I mean, what was happening in the months leading up to his passing? I mean, you know, as you kind of described, it seems like, I mean, no one saw this coming, and he continued to work and wanted to continue working and had all these plans. That's right. And I mean, the phrase underlying condition is bandied about here in relation to COVID as in really quite offensive ways. People, people say things like, well, he had an underlying condition, he'd have died anyway. And I've heard it said about a lot of people. Andy's underlying condition was um, something called sarcoidosis, which can affect kind of pretty much any part of the body, but in his case, mostly affected the lungs. But it was absolutely under control. And, um, you know, it was being managed. You know, he also had childhood asthma, but that hardly was affecting him at all anymore. So this notion that is being bandied about that somehow the COVID dead were, were people who would have died prematurely anyway is a nonsense. I just wanted to make that point because it's it's something that's been quite shameful in a lot of the political discourse on both sides of the Atlantic, um, the kind of undervaluing of of people um, if they were older or had or had some kind of pre-existing condition. Um, but anyway, he um, in his case, as I say, it was it was under control. He was actually in very good shape. He had been touring in um, in Europe, um, and uh, in fact, I went with them in uh, September because it was our 
20th wedding anniversary, uh, the night they were playing in Athens, uh, our 30th year together. And um, brilliant, absolutely brilliant gigs. And then they went on and did a tour of, of Australia, New Zealand, Japan and China. So the last date that they dates that they played were in China. When he returned, he seemed perfectly fine. Um, but that was the stage where my stepfather became ill. So I was quite distracted uh, for a, a while. And then I thought that Andy had the flu and he appeared to get a bit ill, but then he got better again. And it wasn't really until New Year that I realized how ill, how fragile he seemed. And then I did spend some time trying to persuade him to go into hospital. Um, there was some delay because he was very resistant to it. Anybody who saw, who, who knew Andy or saw his stage performances will not be surprised to know that he was a man of strong opinions. Um, and, um, but anyway, got him into hospital. They thought that he was, they, they diagnosed pneumonia. They thought they would get him in and out of hospital quite quickly, but instead he did not respond to any of this very targeted treatment they were able to give him. And I mean, it was all very painful, but the worst thing that happened for me was that at one point they got me to go home because I really hadn't been, you know, I'd been spending every possible moment there. And they said he was stable and I should go and rest. And it was, of course, when I was gone from his bedside that he had some kind of crisis and they put him into a coma when I wasn't there. And so I was never able to say goodbye to him. Um, he, he lasted a few more days. And rather surreally, he died on the day that the UK left the European Union, so-called Brexit Day. And I say surreal because he was in a hospital overlooking the Houses of Parliament and there was a candlelit vigil for Europe. But, you know, I could see it outside the window the night that I knew he was going to die the next day. So, yeah, it was it was a very strange time. Oh, my gosh, I can't imagine. Um, you know, and then you, you went on to um, write a book, and your, your book is called Good Grief, Embracing Life at a Time of Death. You know, and it, it discusses, you know, what happened with your late husband, Andy Gill, but it also talked about your grief, you know, all of this happening during a pandemic when, when we can't see people, we're stuck inside. I mean, you are one to go out on walks. I think you said one of the greatest gifts someone gave you was, you know, talk, looking at, um, pointing out where all the, the the oldest trees are, I believe, in your community. And so you had a place to walk to every day. Um, but, you know, reading your book, you also passed on some really valuable information on how to approach others who are grieving. You know, a point that you really stress in this book is the best thing for people to do for someone who is grieving is to just be there, reach out to them. You know, a lot of times people don't know what to do, so they don't do anything. And in you say in this book, that's the worst thing you can do, at least try. Um and in this book, you say, I want to read a quote from this book. Um, you say, the single most important way to support the grieving is to be there for them, to put in the hours, whether that means ensuring that they eat, listening in silence, or speaking to avoid, helping with administrative tasks, or organizing small gatherings and meals. Deeds, not words. You know, you talk also that a lot of people try to give you advice. That's not really helpful. Like, just <laughs> be there and, like, do something to help. And you also go on and, and say, you know, here are 
are, you know, 12 things you should not say to someone who's grieving, and here are 12 things you should say. So can you break down some of the things you should not say to someone who's <laughs> grieving? Well, I mean, I do do that just, just to try and uh, be helpful. And as you'll have seen, some of them are very funny. I mean, there's an awful lot. I hope you found the book funny as well as, you know, it's obviously a very emotional uh, book. But um, there is there are moments where you can't quite believe what people have said um, yeah. and they can't quite believe what they've said. And so I quoted some of those things like a very lovely old friend of mine who decided to say, now do you regret not having had children? Which is pro probably <laughs> probably not the best timing, um, but quite funny. And also sort of reflex things people say, like I found everyone kept ending phone calls by saying get well soon as if I had some kind of bad head cold or something but you know that stuff's funny what I was trying to warn against was people meaning to be helpful very often interrogate you about how you're feeling um, there's a particular way of going and how are you mm. but although well meant um, you know there's a lot of there's a lot of days where the thing that you most want to be able to do is to be functional. And the last thing you want to do is be asked to be introspective and answer that question. So it gives you two choices. You either lie, you say, oh, I'm fine. Or else you you turn inwards just when you don't want to. So that's that's why um, I made that list and I made that list with my mother because, of course, we were both going through widowhood at the same time and still are. But but we also wanted to make a list of of helpful things that people can do. And mostly, I have to say, people have been extraordinarily kind. But a lot of the kindness had to be at a distance because of because of being locked down. So, I mean, again, something I noticed, you know, we're all heartily sick of zoom socializing here and i and i'm sure you all are but i had at the beginning of of that period i realized that nobody was inviting me to any of the supposedly fun zoom events i didn't get invited to any of the kind of zoom drinks parties or zoom quizzes i was again being invited to things where they were all kind of terribly serious and they were all focused on me and actually that was the last thing that i wanted or needed it's not that you don't want the deeply personal conversations, but as I say, part of navigating certainly the early stages of grief is trying to control the intensity of it and having periods where you can just feel even vaguely normal for, for longer periods of time. Yeah, I mean, what is your, and I should back up and, and just say what some of the things you sh you should say to those that are grieving before I ask the next question. Some of the ones that I found helpful are, you know, would you like help organizing the funeral? I have these skills, or maybe if you don't have skills, you can say I can commit these amount of hours. You know, you can say, do you want to hang out this weekend or go for a walk? Or, you know, you're presenting food to someone or just saying, you know, let's meet up regularly, you know, those kind of things. But as you've kind of reflected on, you know, this past more than a year now, I mean, what is your advice for people 
who are going through grief, either now or in the future or, or in the past? I mean, do, do you have advice for people who are yes. moving through grief? Absolutely. And I mean, one of the other reasons that I wanted to write this book is we're in this very grief-soaked era. It isn't just that so many of us have lost people because, you know, with the, the toll of COVID dead and other dead in this period, because of the various restrictions on the ways in which we could see people. People have not only got a lot of grief, they haven't been able to express it. They haven't always been able to celebrate people. You know, I was very lucky in being able to celebrate Andy as fully as I've done. But also people have lost other things. People have lost opportunities. They've lost jobs. They've, you know, this all unfolded against the backdrop of that terrible death of George Floyd and, and Black Lives Matters and all of the that sense of both injustice and the grief at, at continuing injustice. So I wanted to I wanted to acknowledge that there are lots of different kinds of grief and there's also something a bit different, which is trauma. There are some of us who are quite traumatized by the things that have happened. But um for me, one of the main things about grief for, for the dead, I call, I call the dead the lovely dead. The way to move through grief is not to try to expel it, but to indeed embrace it because you are embracing the person you've lost. And what you want to be able to do is get to a point where the dead are part of your life and that gives you pleasure and sustenance and you are able to remember them with joy instead of just with flinching with pain. So I think it is this question of how do you how do you incorporate grief into your life? And people have mad ideas that a lot of people have sort of half picked up this idea about there being stages of grief, but they they treat it like a kind of obstacle course that you're supposed to rush through. You know, have you done that stage yet? Good. Well, then you can move on to that. It's really not like that at all. I want to go out on a on a song that you associate with Andy. You know, it could be either a song that he's been involved in or a song that reminds you of him or a song off of this new tribute album. Well, the song I think I would choose is off the album. The Problem of Leisure, is, it's got it's a 20 track album. So there's a big choice here. But one of the tracks is by Gail Ann Dorsey, who is a marvellous musician who was in Gang of one of the iterations of Gang of Four. And she was for a long time David Bowie's bass player. And she's done a lot of solo work herself. And she has done a, a cover of We Live As We Dream Alone. And everything about that, the sentiment about it, is just completely, it captures... It captures this weird time that we've lived through, that we are living through. This isolation isn't just a, a physical thing. And she's done such a beautiful version of it. I have it running through my head all the time. I've been speaking with Catherine Mayer. She's co-founder of the UK Women's Equality Party. Her book called Good Grief, Embracing Life at a Time of Death will be released in the US on June 15th. She's also widow of the late Andy Gill. He was guitarist for the English post-punk band Gang of Four. The Gang of Four tribute album featuring covers by Idols, Dandy Warhols, and more will be released June 4th. 
Here's Gail Ann Dorsey's cover of Gang of Four's We Live As We Dream Alone from the upcoming tribute album called The Problem of Leisure. Everybody Sound and Vision, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, and consider giving a one-time $20 donation to help support this show at kexp.org slash sound. Thanks for listening.